This is season three, episode 11 of Sports Life Balance. I remember being on my ninth grade baseball team and uh, I was the only one who didn't get a hit, you know, on the whole team. And uh, I was embarrassed by that. And, and then I, I often think that it wasn't all that much longer, about, I think about six years, I was in the major leagues. <laughs> And, you know, playing with guys who I watched on TV growing up and, and uh, playing in, in the big league stadiums and playing against uh, the very best players in the world. Um, it was it was really, really amazing. And, and uh, you know, I, I just think back to the privilege of playing in those stadiums. I mean, they were perfect. You know, those fields were just perfect. But um, there were times riding in a bus to the next town, riding on a plane, you just pinched yourself. It was, you know, how, how does this happen? You know, it's a pretty amazing ride. Introducing Major League pitcher Jim Abbott, sharing his perspective about his unlikely rise to the pinnacle of baseball. I'm John Moffat, and thank you for joining us today on Sports Life Balance. Jim was born without his right hand to teenage parents in working class Flint, Michigan. His passion for sports started early, and with the unyielding support of his mom and dad, Jim thrived despite his physical limitations. His unprecedented talent and fierce drive earned him a starting position on the University of Michigan's baseball team. Then, just three years later, Jim won an Olympic gold medal as the closing pitcher at the 1988 Seoul Korea Olympic Games. But Jim's crowning moment, the holy grail of pitching accomplishments, was throwing a no-hitter for the New York Yankees in front of a home crowd in 1993. Throughout Jim's athletic career, and today as a best-selling author, motivational speaker, and family man, he has modeled his life around the mindset taught to him by his father, which is to always make the most of what you're given rather than focus on what's been taken away. All right, shall we get this thing going? Let's do it. All right. Hey, Jim, well, um, thank you for sitting down with me today um, and speaking with me on Sports Life Balance. I really appreciate it. Happy to do it, John. Thanks for having me. You know, right off the bat, oh, I, I, that's, that was a bad pun. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to say, <laughs> <laughs> but I've got an admission of sorts for you though. Um, until the last few years, I'm, I've never really been a baseball fan. I've never really followed it. And in fact, it was the pandemic that got me interested because baseball was one of the only sports that was on like in the early times of the pandemic. And I kind of became a Dodger fan. Um, and, um, it also probably stems from the fact that I was an absolutely terrible baseball player as a boy. So it probably explains also why I went and became a swimmer. <laughs> Two different skill sets for sure. Yeah. Yes. Yes, indeed. But I was definitely very aware of you though, and your story and the fact that you were missing your right hand and that you were a pitcher in the big leagues. Um, and, and after reading your book, Imperfect and Improbable, life, um, I, I realized that your notoriety as a one-handed major leaguer, as a, as a pitcher, was in so many ways like the, the bane of your existence, having that always be part of your story. Um, explain your feelings um, about, about that aspect of your career. Sure. So, um, you know, I grew up differently. I grew up missing my right hand. Uh, it's the way I was born. So I never knew any different. I can't say that, you know, the ways that I learned to go about my day were any any more difficult or 
any more inspiring than anybody else. It's just what I did. You know, I, I had to find a different way of going about things and then, and then, you know, get the job done. Um, I guess like anybody, you know, um, who has a perception of themselves maybe as being a little bit different, whether that's conscious or uh, subconscious, um, you know, I, there's a there gets to be there gets to be a presence in your life, I suppose, a little bit, and 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 so uh, I, I did spend a lot of my life, um, I guess, working around all of that, um, working with it, working around it, uh, working within it, I suppose, and uh, I think it drew me to sports. Um, I think it pushed me to play sports to the best of my ability. And in ultimately, I became thankful for it, but it was a long process. Right, right. So, well, it, 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 that takes me to the next question. We're shifting gears a little bit. But with, with, I found with all athletes' stories, and it's something that I, I find fascinating about, I love athletes. Um, and and that we, it starts with their childhood. It starts with how they were raised. Um, and your parents were very young when they had you. I, think, I believe they were just 18 years old, correct? They were very young, yes. Yeah. So, so it was, it, it was, it wasn't the easiest thing for them to bring you into the world, um, especially under the circumstances in the sixties and, and all of that. Ex- explain, you, you spend a lot of time in your book actually really going in depth about them and their mindset and where they were when you were yeah. born and a little kid. Well, my mom and dad, Mike and Kathy Abbott, um, you know, they had me at a very, very early age. They both had, uh, pretty distinguished high school careers. My dad was a good athlete and, and probably could have done some played athletics in uh, one sport or another in college. And, and my mom was a, was a very smart uh, uh, student. And, and so, you know, having a baby at that age, they had to give up some of their dreams. You know, they had to give up some of, of the life that was right in front of them. Um, so, yeah, it was, you know, early, it was a bit of a push, I would say, Um you know, the sacrifices that they made, you know, finding a way to, to raise a young family and, and to find a way to make a living. Um, yeah, we definitely, uh, you know, it was an improbable journey for sure. I, I think if, if you would have told them at the time how things might work out for all of us, for my brother, my brother, I have one brother who does, who's done very well. And, and my mom and dad, I lost my dad earlier this summer, but, um, you know, my mom went on to become an attorney and, and, uh, I'm as proud of all of their stories as I, I guess I am of my own. Yeah, that I mean, it, it is a it is a, a, a an amazing way that you go in depth and to you know, even before you were born, what they were experiencing and all of that. Um, at, I, I was curious because at some point you were fitted with a prosthesis. Uh, in, in essence, it was uh, it was a, a a a metal hand shaped like a hook. Um, you, but you really didn't, it, it was supposed to help you, but it really didn't take a shine to it. W- tell me about why that was. Well, you know, my parents were, um, you know, they were so young and I, I don't know that, I don't know that they were grasping at straws, so to speak, but mm-hmm. they were open to anything. And, and that was an attitude that would ultimately become incredibly positive in my life. And, but it le- did lead down to some roads that, you know, ultimately, uh, we didn't end up following through on. And, and so a prosthesis, yeah, they, they had me fitted and, and I think they're pretty much the same. They haven't evolved all that much, although there are some robotic and different things that they're doing now with hands, 
Um, but this one was pretty rudimentary. You know, it, it had a strap around my back and, and then it had the big, a big heavy, uh, almost like a cast fitted cast and then a metal hook at the end of it. So <clears throat> it was, it was heavy and, you know, it, it, it just wasn't something that helped me to do the things that I love to do. You know, I love right. to play sports. I love to mix in with, you know, you know, the, the, the kids on the playground and, and that hook, you know, almost served as a barrier to that mm. entry. So uh, I ended up discarding it and I, and I don't, you know, I know a lot of people have very great success with prosthetics. Um, it wasn't for me, uh, but I, I love the symbolism of it in terms of my mom and dad's willingness to get out there and try to find a solution and to, you know, offer whatever aid or help that I might need to get through, you know, my, my kid's life, my school day. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah, you, you, you mentioned that they were, they were really struggling. There's no guidebook on how to deal with a child, much less, a, a you know, a child that has some physical limit limitations. Um, at, at some point they sent you, I believe it was a, to a rehab facility or a hospital. It was Mary, Mary Freebed. Was that what it was called? Yeah. 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 And, and you, they spent, they sent you there obviously to improve your life, right. To, um, to make you deal to to deal with the limitations better, but I guess about a month in, your dad had an epiphany. Um, tell me about what that epiphany was and what uh, what resulted in that epiphany. Well, it's funny, you know. Um, again, sending me down to that uh, to that hospital, uh, and it really was a hospital. It, it, I don't know that I have an earlier memory of than that. I don't even really know. I mean, I guess I could guess how old I was, but I. It, it's stunning to me that that's, I think it was so jarring. Mm. Uh, and I don't really mean that in a bad way. Uh, it was just, I remember it, you know, and I don't remember a lot around that particular age. Um, and there were just a lot of kids, you know, I, you know John, I, I've met so many kids and, and uh, you know, who have similar uh, challenges as I do with limb difference and, 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 and many, many, many more with a lot worse. And, and I've been very lucky to be honest. Uh, but that was sort of when I was tossed headfirst in there, you know, mm -hmm. it was like, you, I was saw kids, you know, just really, really up against it. And, and I think, um, again, it was an effort for my parents to put me with, uh, in a positive environment, put me in an environment where there were experts uh, quote unquote. And, um, I think my dad just driving home from there one day, I don't, I didn't stay months at a time, but I think I went a couple different times. And, and I think he just decided, you know, you know, this isn't how we want to raise him. You know, that I think there was this epiphany that we were going to make the most of, of what would has been given. And, and the focus wasn't going to be on loss, but rather on, um, you know, positivity and, 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 and he had a favorite saying, you know, what's taken away once is given back twice. And, and I think that's when he started to come around and my mom too. And I don't mean to do, in, not include my mom here. Um, yeah. I think he felt like more was given to me than was taken away. Mm -hmm. And it was time to take the focus away from, from um, you know, what wasn't there. Right. Right. And, and so how did, how did, that change of his mind, your parents' mindset. How did how did that how did that then affect you? Do you do you remember? Well, I think it changed the entire mindset of to one of um, 
it really disallowed a lot of excuses, right? I mean, when, when you change your focus away from, uh, oh gosh, well, I don't have this or I don't have that. And, and I don't, you know, this, this person has more than I do. Um, you know, you can get, it really can, can spiral down. It can be a barrier in terms of what you think is possible. And, and I think when you change to that, to that, what is given mindset, um, all of a sudden the excuses are eliminated. You know, it's, there's an accountability there, a looking in the mirror, like, you know, what, you know, making the most of what you've been given. And it be, really became a driving force in my life. You know, it, it, uh, it, it just doesn't allow for an excuse. So how did that mindset translate into you doing sports? Well, I, I love sports. I grew, I grew up in Michigan, um, in Flint, Michigan. We had incredible athletic legacy in the, in the city with basketball players and football players and track stars, a few baseball players here and there. But um, And so it was the culture. You know, that high school varsity jacket, uh, I went to movies and at the cinema and I'd see, you know, these people that I was reading about in the local Flint Journal paper. Um, and it was not a conscious effort, but it, I know there was something about fitting in and being a part of something and being on a team. And those were my heroes. So I was lucky. I had a great, stable, encouraging group of friends uh, that when we got up in the morning, sports were the first thing we thought about. And, and we played until it got dark and then we got up and did it again. So um, it wasn't that I was getting up and saying, oh, I have one hand, I'm going to go prove everybody wrong. I was doing what I'd love to do. And again, that, that mindset from my parents encouraged thinking differently about how to go about holding a baseball bat or switching a glove on and off or uh, whatever it was that I needed to do to play. There was a way, you know, spending that long every day doing it, you were going to find a way. And, and so I, I ended up, you know, being drawn to that culture and that life. Yeah. And you, you, you speak of the theme about, that sports is a great equalizer for you. You you speak about that throughout your book, um, that in a very concrete way, um, and and you also say it doesn't matter how you were born. Um, explain the significance of of kind of discovering that as you grew up as a boy. Well, I think you know, like you probably, and like most of us over the past couple of years, I've immersed myself in. Uh, different books and different podcasts and people, and I love biographies. Um, and it's funny to me that, that a lot of the things that we're talking about today, John, you know, you hear about in actors or you hear about in artists or, um, you know, musicians and different, you know, there's, there's a driving force behind them and it's not always pretty, you know, it's not always uh, the feel good story. And, and maybe there's a lesson there that, that, uh, a little bit of discomfort can be what ends up prodding you to things that you didn't think you could always do. Uh, and so my story fits into that narrative. I really, I didn't, I didn't know that at the time. And I don't mean to tidy it up with a bow. Um, you know, I love sports. I was very, very competitive. I hated losing um, in, a, in an almost ugly way. I'm not proud of that. I had an ambition um, that showed itself sometimes that, um, you know, I, I didn't know where that came from. And, and so maybe it came from my hand, maybe it didn't. Um, but I was who I was. And I have to believe that, that growing up the way I did, missing a right hand, you know, played a big part in that. 
Yeah, you talk about ambition and trying to do great things. And these are things that all of us grapple with to varying degrees. But ambition, I found, also comes with a lot of pain. Um, really high ambition is a really uncomfortable place to be constantly putting yourself in. It's exactly right. Yeah, it is uncomfortable um, when you're, especially as you know, and, and some of the other people that you've spoken with, uh, as you get up the achievement ladder, so to speak, I guess when you get up and you start going against people who are really good at the same thing you're really good at, uh, you know, the difference between uh, moving on and moving forward and, 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 and getting caught is, is, is very, very small. And so uh, you push yourself in ways that you don't always think are possible and, and hopefully it doesn't eat you up too much, but somehow you come tumbling and flying out the other side and you look around and you say, oh my gosh, you know, look at, look at this. We never, never thought that this was possible. And, um, you know, I have a chance to speak to people nowadays quite a bit and, and I'm very heartened by that. And, and my message, I guess, at the end of the day is very much like yours is, is, it's shocking to me the things that are possible and, 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 and good and within us. And, um, you know, after the past couple of years, I, I hope we will all continue to believe that because we certainly have had a lot of noise and a lot of dissonance telling us, you know, uh, otherwise. Uh, very, very well said. And I can't agree with you more. Um, you, you, you write that baseball found you. What do you mean by that? Yeah. You know, I, I loved basketball. I loved football. I loved, you know, I, it didn't really matter to me mm. um, what it was out there uh, until baseball sort of just became something that I identified with. It wasn't that it was a singular pursuit uh, to be a pitcher. Uh, you know, I started off as a third baseman on my little league team and, and uh, you know, my, one of my best friends, dad, put me at pitcher and, and I said, well, I, I kind of liked it, you know, and, and, uh, but it, it wasn't something that I woke up in the morning thinking about playing baseball. It was, I love the Detroit Tigers, you know, I love the Detroit Lions. I love the Pistons. I love the university of Michigan. Um, you know, those were all my heroes. And so, um, it was just that they say, find something you love to do. And I know that's a hard thing to do. I, I know that a lot of people, uh, but, but I found baseball. Baseball found me, and it, and it did become something that I, I thought about twenty four seven. I always was thinking about pitching and trying to get better, and and uh, I was very lucky for that. Well, through that singular focus, you began to get really good, um, and you started really getting noticed, noticed, and started receiving awards, and and you you. Uh, I know you felt uncomfortable about many of the accolades and the attention that you were receiving through um, through your your prowess on the on the baseball field. Um, you know, awards for being an inspirational person and overcoming obstacles and all of that. Why why did you have so much discomfort for people recognizing um, what is in fact your life story? Well. Thank you for doing your research. I, I appreciate that. Well. <laughs> uh, and, and reading about this stuff. Um, uh, I don't know. You know, I was, I was 12 years old when the first article was written about me. And um, 
and it was great. I loved it. It's framed in my office. I still have it. You know, my 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 friends teased me. My parents, you know, got a lot of satisfaction out of it. Um, and then as I did well, you know, it just became one banquet after another. And I don't mean that to sound disparaging. I'm very thankful. And, and I got to meet some great people. And I know the intention was great. I really do. But I just didn't want to be the most inspirational athlete over and over again. I really was trying to be good. And and I'm not saying, you know, whatever, people participate. I, but for me, uh, when it became obvious that, yeah, there was a connection to my story, and I certainly was appreciative of that. Um, and for whatever good that that made for younger kids similar to me, fantastic, right? But wouldn't it be great if the story was also one of success, you know, of, of, of doing well and not just participating, but competing. And that's what I love to do. I love to compete. And, and so I, I'm very proud of awards, you know, where there was achievement involved. I wasn't as proud of the awards uh, that were simply about participation. Well, you, you were good, very, very good. And you, actually earned a spot on the University of Michigan baseball team. I mean, and, and you mentioned that University of Michigan, you were a huge fan. That, that must have been a big dream come true for you. It is. And, and, and I know, uh, you know, right now we're football teams doing well and we're riding a little bit of a high and people, people don't always like to hear about it. But, uh, you know, I grew up in Flint, Michigan, as I mentioned, and my hero was a guy named Rick Leach. Uh, Rick Leach was a starting quarterback at the University of Michigan for four years. He was a two-sport athlete. He was, you know, he was from Flint. And, you know, so that maize and blue was deeply ingrained in me. And, and um, you know, to this day, I'm very, you know, you, you say very kindly that I was very good. But I think like a lot of athletes, I didn't think of it that way. You know, I always thought about, where I was at that particular time, you know, and, and it, it I, I always kind of looked at to the next step, you know, to the, you know, from little league to, to junior high school to high school. I never, I don't remember ever feeling like, man, I, I got this licked, you know, I'm coming into this hot, you know, and, and people are going to be opening the doors. You know, I was, I always felt like there was a certain amount of earning uh, the next level. And so going to Michigan was a big time uh, notch in the belt and helping me to comprehend and, and be able to play with great players from when well, they had a very good baseball program at the time. And these are great players from Ohio, from the Midwest, from the state of Michigan, guys who I'd seen and competed against. So that was a great, gave me great confidence that, that maybe I was uh, somewhat on the, on the way, but at least had been gotten to the place that was that important to me. Right. And you, you mentioned notch in, in your belt and um, another notch in your belt was the fact that you started getting noticed uh, by team USA. You were, you were in, in the midst of your collegiate um, career um, and the, you, you were selected on the U S national baseball team to go to Pan American games. I believe this was 1987. Mm-hmm. Um, how was that team experience and dynamic different than previous teams that you had been on in your collegiate experience as well? Well, uh, you know, as you know, the, the, the USA experience is just, uh, 
is just something else. And, you know, we, um, I, you know, had a certain amount of confidence and had done, had a found a certain amount of success at Michigan, but Michigan was still sort of a regional program, a national program, but, but they did very well, you know, in the Midwest. And, and so to be invited to those tryouts and, and, to be in the barracks in Millington, Tennessee with, you know, guys from Auburn and Stanford and Miami and, you know, the, the guys who I'd read about and thought about and to try out for that team and to make that team. Um, it, it, it was gratifying personally. Um, but I also love the experience of playing for that team because the mission was so singular. You know, it was, it was, there was such complete buy-in. Everybody was so happy to be there. Everybody was proud to represent their schools. They were proud to play against, you know, Cuba and Japan and, and great amateur teams from around the world. Uh, and so it was just a magical, I wouldn't trade, you know, my, my Olympic or Pan American game or USA team experience for anything. It was, it was the best teams I ever played for. Yeah. And, and you ended up, uh, uh, getting silver at the Pan American Games behind Cuba, which were very good at the time. Yes, very good. But but that silver medal also allowed you to qualify for the 1988 Seoul Summer Olympics. You spent a lot of time with the team again the next summer, um, and, and you, you dedicate a great deal of your book to telling those stories and what it was like bonding, traveling, competing, training with this rather small group of guys. Uh, tell me, tell me about that experience leading up to Seoul. Well, we played in 87 you know, on the Pan American team and you're, you're right uh, to, we had to finish second place in the Pan Am games in Indianapolis, um, you know, to, to earn a spot uh, in the Olympics the following year. So we did that, which was a tremendous sense of accomplishment. And, and then they, they brought a lot of the, same guys back, maybe a core foundation, but they brought in some new guys. And so the experience was completely new. You know, we had Robin Ventura from Oklahoma State and Tino Martinez from Tampa. And our head coach was Mark Marcus from Stanford. Our pitching coach was, was Skip Bertman from LSU. I mean, all of these luminaries in the college game, you know, took time away from their families and, and coached the entire summer. We were together all summer and wow. it wasn't glamorous. We played in minor league ballparks. Um, we carried our own bags. We traveled in school buses um, and it was worth every second. We'll be right back with Jim in just a minute. Our loyal partner is Roca. I've been using their wetsuits and goggles and swimsuits for many, many years. Why? Because they design and manufacture the best gear you can buy. And Roca also makes amazing eyeglasses and sunglasses. They're handmade in Austin, Texas, and designed for those of us who like to push the limits and want to look good doing it. I know this firsthand because I own a few pairs myself, and they're feather light, and they don't slip off my face no matter what I'm doing. And check this out. You can try them on at home. Roca will send you your choice of four frames, see how they look on your own face, and then you get to pick your favorite. And if you need prescription glasses like I do, just send your prescription to Roca with your online order and they'll customize the lenses for you. So go to Roca.com, that's R-O-K-A.com, and enter discount code SLB as in Sports Life Balance. That's just three letters, SLB, to save 20% on all your orders. And that's for anything on their website. Enjoy exploring. And we're back with more Sports Life Balance. And it wasn't glamorous. We played in minor league ballparks. Um, we carried our own bags. We traveled in school buses. 
Um, and it was worth every second, you know, because uh, that team was a bunch of 20 through 22 year old kids. We were playing Cuba, you know, they were 30 years old. We thought they were ancient, you know, <laughs> and, and they were one of the best teams in the world in Taiwan and in Japan and, and um, Korea. You know, a lot of those players, this was a little bit before those players really were starting to come to the United States to play Major League Baseball. So we were seeing some high-level competition and a lot of times underdogs walking on the field. Um, but what a formative experience. I mean, just to, to play in those parks, a lot of people came out to see us in small towns uh, where we traveled and played and, and – um, and, and those guys really came to love each other. They really did. And we got to Seoul, we got to Korea. Um, and, and, you know, the Olympic Village is a magical place, right? And all those athletes and those flags and that music, uh, to be together there was uh, really a culmination. And it feels dreamlike now. Yeah, dream dreamlike indeed. And And those experiences don't often end up with such a happy ending in which you were actually pitching in that final game against Japan when... You, your team USA won gold. Uh, it must have just been what a transition in your life. What a what a what a different trajectory suddenly you must have taken after that magic summer. It's true. I'm sitting in my office now. I'm looking at a picture of a you know I, I, this jam pile of baseball players in Korea, and I was the I'm the guy at the very bottom. You can't even see me. I'm at the <laughs> bottom, bottom of the pile. Uh, you know, guys jump six feet in the air on top of each other. And, and um, you know, the Olympics, it, it, you know, so much has been said and talked about, and, and it's all true. You know, I mean, to me, the memories are competing, uh, but it's also the village, you know, the, the great swimmers, the track stars, you know, uh, the, everybody, you know, great athletes were eating uh, bananas and raisins and things like that. And we were eating chili dogs and French fries and having the time of our lives. Right? <laughs> Um, but we did win and, you know, I was out there for the last out and to celebrate and, uh, I will never forget that flight home from Korea, that long, long flight home and, and just being, you know, tremendously happy and calm and at peace and, and, uh, unsure of what was next, but knowing that, that what had just happened was pretty wonderful. I love the fact that you said that that you were at peace. That there was there was an accomplishment that was bigger than yourself that you were striving for your entire life, and and you came out the other end and were able to accomplish it. Not long after, um, if I'm getting the timeline correct, not long after uh, the 1988 gold, you were also drafted first round uh, to the Angels. They're now the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim. Back then, I think they were just the Anaheim Angels. California, yeah. California Angels, California. that's right, that's right. Once again, I show my ignorance about the uh, the baseball history, so you have to excuse or me. Or I'm showing my age, one of the two. But being drafted into um, the major leagues and then being brought to Southern California, what a like an epic consequential shift, consequential shift in your life was occurring right then. Yeah. Yeah. Everything was happening so fast. You know, I, I, um, I remember being on my ninth grade baseball team and, and uh, I was the only one who didn't get a hit, you know, on the whole team. Oh. And uh, I was embarrassed by that. And, and then, 
I, I often think that it wasn't all that much longer about, I think about six years I was in the major leagues <laughs> and, you know, playing with guys who I watched on TV growing up and, and uh, coming to California as a, as someone who grew up in the Midwest, um, you know, California holds sort of a, uh, a magical place in your imagination, uh, literally with Disneyland and, and uh, Anaheim. But coming out here and, and then, you know, uh, playing in the, in the big league stadiums and playing against uh, the very best players in the world, um, it was it was really, really amazing. And, and uh, uh, you know, I, I just think back to the privilege of playing in those stadiums. I mean, they were perfect. You know, those yeah. fields were just perfect. And they're even better, they're 10 times better now. But um there were times riding in a bus to the next town, riding on a plane, you just pinched yourself. It was, you know, how, how does this happen? You know, it's a pretty amazing ride. But it, it, I would also assume that part of that ride into the majors is quite a shock, I would think, to suddenly find yourself against playing against the, the greatest baseball players on the planet. Um, it must have been quite different than college or international play? You know, it, it really was, although I, I do think playing internationally um, was a great preparation for professional baseball. Um, but what I loved about the major leagues and to go back to the context of, of having one hand and, and perceptions, nobody cared. <laughs> Once you got to the big leagues, yeah, once the feel-good stories were disseminated, got out, and, you know, I've met with plenty of people and reporters and camera crews, you know, in my initial rounds through the league. Uh, after that, it was all accountability. You're playing against people who are fighting, you know, who are fathers and who are, you know, husbands and, and grown men fighting for their livelihood and, and coaches who are fighting for their livelihood and they really didn't give a damn how you got the ball to the plate. You know, they, they just, it was all about success. And, you know, the people in AAA uh, didn't care what your personal story was. And they wanted your job and they wanted it tomorrow. Right. So um, it, it was a fight, you know, it was a, it was a definite fight. It was, I, I never really, I guess there were a few times, but you never stop and you know, unfortunately take a deep breath and go, Whoa, isn't this the best? It was always like, what do I got to do today to get better? What do I got to do tomorrow to get better? And, you know, and whether it's mental, physical, or, you know, there was always moving forward, always trying to get better and, and, and to practice and work. And, and then, um, you know, really the days go by very quickly. But also being a pro athlete, there are some mighty struggles. Um, any, anytime reaching the top and you spoke about this a little bit before, but you know, when you get there and you're facing a tough day or you just had a really, really tough day, how did you take that tough day and make sure that it didn't turn into another and then a week and then a slump? <laughs> Well, I mean, you might be asking the wrong person because I, uh, you know, that was one of the most valuable lessons. You know, I, I had a, I had some seasons I was very proud of. I won 18 games one year and, um, and I, I also lost 18 games one year. And it, it was a manifestation of exactly what you're speaking of right now, the inability to get back to the moment, to simplify mm. 
to control the mental uh, noise that made the mountain seem all the more insurmountable, right? That it, it became, you know, when you're when you're two and eight, you know, and, and there's questions about your record and, and your place in a rotation, um, you know, that next time out can take on a real added significance if you can't control it, if you can't mentally break it down and go back to the things that, you know, you do best and that you love best. And, and that year it did break down on me. I, 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 I really scuffled with um, my, how are people looking at me? What's the perception of me? You know, this thing that I'd always been good at and taken a lot of self-esteem from was all of a sudden on very shaky ground, uh, even if it was in my own mind, you know? And, and so um, that is the, the fight for an athlete um, trying to compete with a clear mind about exactly what you're trying to do, you know, in a process-based uh, approach rather than a, a results-based approach. Right. And, and letting those emotions get carried, uh, let them seep inside you and become yes. doubt. Yeah. No, that, that is definitely, that is definitely, um, part of the balance of sports life balance that I, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm any athlete realizes that, that, that it's a precarious balance. Um, right. and that sometimes you're on and sometimes you're off and, and you don't, you don't know why. Um, after, I believe it was four seasons with the angels, you were traded to the New York Yankees in, in 1993, I believe if I got the years mm-hmm. correct. Um, that must've been quite yet another culture shock um, to suddenly find yourself from Southern California to living in Manhattan and, and playing ball in the Bronx. Yes. Well, particularly for a Tigers fan growing up and, and for a, you know, an angel who, who always thought he would be an angel. Uh, and I mean that with the team, not necessarily angel. <laughs> um, it was a shakeup for sure. It was my wife and I, you know, we, I was traded um, to the Yankees and, and um, there were great expectations. Uh, I was actually pretty well, I was doing pretty well. I wasn't traded for, for negative reasons other than I didn't, sign a contract that the angels wanted me to sign. So they traded me. Um, and then, you know what though, I make sound corny. I am so thankful for having played in New York city. I'm so thankful. I, I, I imagine I tried to think of a world where I stayed in Anaheim my entire career. And I, I don't know how that would have went, but um, to have played in California, to have played for the New York Yankees, it's a different experience. It's a hyper existence, you know, the scrutiny, the attention, the players, the travel, everything about it's incredible. And, um, and so I'm happy for that. And, and it wasn't always a smooth ride in New York, but um, you know, they love you there, you know, for forever. If you, if you can just do right by the team and, and uh, I'm thankful for that connection. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, you, um, I've got to, I've got to talk to you about the, the no hitter. I mean, that's just, um, you, you, you were struggling a bit. Um, in fact, you had a, a, a rough game against Cleveland and then four days later was September 4th, another home game against Cleveland. And, and that's a day, Jim, that even me as not a baseball fan, 
remembers. I remember seeing you in the news and reading and reading about you that you were uh, you, you 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 achieved that pinnacle of, of pitcher achievement, which was the no hitter. The you describe each of the nine innings in your book. It's kind of like the spine of the book. It's sort of like the through line of your storytelling, and 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 you dedicate one chapter to each one of of the the nine innings. And um, I really appreciated, especially me not knowing the nuances of, of of baseball, really trying to understand what was in your head and the momentum that you started to feel, especially toward the end of the nine innings. Mm. Um, how did you keep from the pressure just crushing you, the nerves, the fear? Yeah. Um, you know, it it's something where, I was I was watching the Michigan Ohio State game recently in football and I'm a big Michigan football fan have been my whole life and um, even more so now for some reason than I ever was and I was I was so nervous <laughs> in the second half of that game and I looked at my wife and I very really talk about my career or whatever but I said you know I was never this nervous <laughs> on the mound <laughs> and I <laughs> I never felt like this, you know, and, and I guess for my kids played sports, I had an older daughter who played volleyball, a younger daughter played water polo. Uh, and I felt like that in their games, you know, like, I guess it's something about being in control. Well, and they were, they were at, I, I, they were at Michigan and well, you have one did, daughter, they did. Okay, Mich- Michigan. So, which is yeah, no joke. They did. We shared that connection, which is one of the proudest things in my life. But um, so to, to make a long story, I, I, I was nervous. I was excited, but it wasn't, it was an excitement. You know, it really was an, an excitement about the moment about being that things had kind of converged and it hadn't been a perfect game. My book's called imperfect because it, it wasn't perfect. Uh, I wasn't perfect where none of us are perfect, you know, and, and, and finding, you know, this, this excitement and this joy within imperfection, I guess was the, was the theme. And, and so, um, you know, that game, I just kind of rolled, just kept moving forward. You know, the innings piled up and I certainly felt it in my lungs and my knees and my spinning thoughts. Um, but yet, uh, you know, I had been through a ninth inning with the Olympics. You know, I had been there at a place where I really, really wanted something badly to happen and it worked out. So I kind of went back to that mindset a little bit. And I did a lot of mental training. I really did a lot of visualization in my career. And so I had some tools at my disposal in terms of control of breath and in terms of, uh, you know, taking a break between innings. So it was excitement. It was nervousness, but it was excitement and joy and elation at the end. And, and the fact of the matter is as well, and this becomes perfectly clear when you, when I, as I read about, each of the nine innings is that no pitcher can accomplish this without their team behind them and without the, the team firing on all cylinders. It's kind of a grand metaphor for, for life, right? For our communities, for our families, for our teammates. Absolutely. And my team was phenomenal that day. The Yankees, Matt Noakes was our catcher, you know, just fantastically supportive and enthusiastic. And the guys made Bernie Williams made a great play in center field. And Mike Gallego made a great play. Wade Boggs made a great play. You know, like I said, it was a, it was a team effort. It was almost as if things were meant to happen. 
And Donnie Mattingly, our team captain, you know, one of my favorite people in the world from Evansville, Indiana, caught the last out and celebrated. And here's a guy who'd done anything and everything in New York City. And to see his elation in that moment, it's just, you know, it was it was a great day. And I understand a lot of things have to go right for something like that to happen. But um, in some small way, I'm so thankful because it has given some people identify that game with my career. And, and to go back to what we spoke about earlier, there's some level of achievement. There's accomplishment there that maybe a young kid like me can latch on to and say, you know, Hey, you know, I, I don't have to just be on the team. I can do well, you know, I can, I can succeed and I can play with other kids. I might do things differently, but I can do them to the same level as anybody else in this world. I, it, it, it truly is an athletic feat that transcends your journey as that one-handed pitcher. I mean, absolutely for sure. Um, you know, just I did a little. I did a little research, um, and you're probably more familiar with this than than me. But to date, there have only been 257 pitchers who have hit uh, uh, hit no hitters in the MLB. Just three. 318 no-hitters have been accomplished throughout the history of the MLB, which is since 1876. And if my math is right, that's 146 years. So I went on to read that the odds of any given pitcher hitting a no-hitter is 0.00013. Wow. What, What an amazing, amazing feat that was. And I mean that wholeheartedly, that that it had nothing to do with the fact that you were Jim Abbott, the guy with no right hand. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's the that's the thing about it, right? I mean, so many things have to go right. And uh, one thing that really helped me in that game, and, it, you know, I pitched it. I had a no-hitter late in the game, I think the eighth inning against the White Sox earlier that year in Yankee Stadium. And I love pitching the Yankee Stadium, by the way. I really – uh, something about being in New York and the pinstripes and the stadium. Um, you know, there was a comfort there, uh, but I pitched against the White Sox and Bo Jackson was on the White Sox team at that oh, time. Wow. And, and he came up to bat and he, he kind of I threw a pretty good pitch and pitching is so process oriented. There's really not a lot of control you have over the result once it leaves your hand. And, and I, th- and he kind of flared a ball. He didn't hit it very hard, but it was a base hit. And, and, and so, uh, and then the next guy hit a home run. So oh. I, we were still winning. It was four to two, but I realized how quickly things can slip away. So um, to go to your point of how improbable that what the statistics are about that, I know how, how hard it is to do. And, and so there was a certain resignation within that no hitter that I only have control over this. Now, I don't really have a lot of control over it. It's a lot like golf. You know, I can only hit the shot and it might bounce into the sand trap or it might bounce towards the hole. One of those two things. I don't know. But um, so that really helped me. That gave me peace of mind late in the game. Like, let's just throw the pitches and, and, and see what happens. Yeah. Great, great example. Just to keep your mind in the game. Yeah. Just do every step, one pitch at a time. Right. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, I've I've been thinking a lot about this in this in, in this question that I wanted to ask, but I can't help to wonder that if somehow having no right hand some 
supercharged in a way your your left hand and arm it, uh, through sharpened dexterity of having your brain. Our brains are all wired to work two hands, um, and and how it, perhaps it doubled up on the nerves and doubled up on the strength and dexterity and and all of that. Do you do you ever feel as though you have that that magic came from just this strange innate talent that was developed based upon having only a left hand? Um, I, you know, I, I don't, maybe a little bit. Um, I know that it affected me psychologically. Like I know that, you know, there wasn't uh, a drive there, but I do think, you know, somebody, and I've met, like I said, so many kids. You, I've, I've done some, met some kids up at, uh, with a wonderful doctor, Nina Lightdale, up at uh, Children's Hospital LA, who's a hand specialist and, and gone to a couple of her clinics with kids around LA. And, you know, John, you wouldn't believe how many kids just in the Los Angeles area, you know, are missing part of a limb, part of a hand, you know, and, uh, and they have to be adaptable. You know, you, you're constantly you know, turning your hand a different way or opening a jar or shaking hands or turning your hand over to open a doorknob. You know, there are certain things that are that are either right-handed or left-handed, so you have to find a way to get those things done. So dexterity might be a good way to put it. I do think there's a certain coordination and strength that goes along with having to do everything with one side of your body. But, and, and important to go to your point about balance, to try to keep working that right side, even though, you know, weightlifting, um, you know, I always you know, did a lot of cuff weights and different things to try to balance out both sides of the body, not to become overdeveloped on one side. I want to fast forward a bit to um, the inevitability of every athletic career and every, that something that every athlete must, must face. And that is, that is your retirement. Um, and, and your retirement from, from baseball was, I, I, I don't mean to uh, categorize it in a way that you, the way you don't feel, but it, it was tough. It was, it was some, it was some rough going. What made you finally walk away from the game that transformed your life? Well, there's an old saying in baseball that the hitters will let you know. <laughs> <laughs> and the hitters let me know. And it, uh, you know, it was just, uh, I really struggled the last few years of my career and I felt like I had, you know, overturned every stone and, and lifted every weight I could and ran every sprint and did every mental challenge I could put myself through. And I just was coming up short. I didn't have the velocity that it took to keep major league hitters honest. And so I had to be honest with myself and, and, um, and it was hard, you know, it was, really difficult to go out there time in and time again and not out and fail. Um, you know, it's just a hard to walk back into the clubhouse. It's hard to come home at night mm -hmm. to your family. Um, and I just had had, I just knew that it's not how I wanted to live anymore. Uh, as much as I love the game and as, as hard as I knew it was going to be to walk away, um, I had to move on. And so, it was a tough few years. Um, you know, I had all my eggs in one basket. It's what I love to do. And I had a bunch of friends who kept playing for a long time after I did. And, and I would watch the games and it really hurt. Um, but, uh, 
um, it goes away. You know, after a while, you, you come to terms with the fact that you did everything you could. There was nothing left on the table. And you become more and more proud of, of uh, I, I guess, like my dad said, what was given rather than was taken away. And, and, yeah. and um, you know, you become more and more satisfied with that. Yeah, yeah. There's, uh, I think, as we as we age and get older, in some perspective. I mean, first of all, the 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 acute pain when you have to end your career turns into just kind of an ache, and then it just is uh, more perspective. But you know, I've I've especially as I get older, I've I've realized and I've gone through many as as you many big chapters in 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 my life, and you know, you always want to go out on top, but. I found that oftentimes those chapters end because of um, disappointment or sadness or, or struggles or downright, right failure. Um, do you do you feel that way? It's like that we just need to sometimes. It's time, and move on. Yeah, I th- you know, I think there's a very important aspect of pitching, and I talked. You know, we meant we talked a little bit about not being in control of a result. And, and I think that's true in life, right? We only control the effort that we, we put into each day. And, and, and sometimes it goes our way and sometimes it doesn't. And sometimes, you know, circumstances conspire against us, but we keep moving forward. You know, we keep finding uh, those things in life that, that make us happy. And, and even if we can't get to them at a particular time, we keep moving forward and, and, um, you know, now I've gotten to a point, and I, I, maybe you have as well, that I, I love using some of the training that you have as a former athlete to, you know, some of that visualization, you know, in the morning or at night or some of that, you know, meditation, I guess, is what we were doing at the time. I didn't really know that, but, you know, some of that honest evaluation, you know, real honest evaluation. It's easy to to pitch a good ball game and, and um think that it was better than it was, you know, and, and you maybe got away with a bad pitch or two, but you, Hey, the result was there uh, or you pitched a, a great ball game and you lost and you feel like, Oh, I did terrible. You know? So yeah. one of the great lessons in life, I think is re- is honest evaluation of, of effort and of performance, evaluating, moving on and, and trying to get better the next time. Yeah. Wow. Um, I mentioned briefly at, a little earlier on that that being drafted to the Angels and living in Southern California, Orange Orange County, was a, a consequential move for you. And you've settled into your family with uh, two two daughters, a wife um, in Newport Beach, and that's coincidentally where I also went to high school. So very Is that fam- right? <laughs> very very familiar with Newport. Um. And you're currently traveling, you travel a lot as a, as a uh, motivational speaker, correct? Yes. You know, after the pandemic, it wasn't a lot of that going on, but, uh, uh, during, I I suppose, but yeah, people are starting to get back together and I'm very lucky that, that, uh, to be invited to some places that I get to go. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you, you've mentioned kids and, and how important it is that, uh, that, that you share your story with, with kids. Um, what do you tell the kids today that are facing the similar struggles of missing a body part or, or, or struggling with, with some other sort of um, physical limitation? Well, first I should say, I, I do feel a, a great connection. Um, it's weird. Uh, and I, I know you have 
worked a lot with the Paralympics as well. And, and, and people have very similar stories to tell there, there is a connection there, uh, both good and bad, you know, both, both good. And the fact that there's an empathy and an understanding of the journey. Um, but also there's a, there's, you know, we don't need to be categorized together just because there's a, there's a physical, uh, you know, limitation in some way that's maybe perceived, you know, we're all different people. We don't, we don't, nobody likes a label. Right. So I guess that's the first thing I'll say. And in the second, I just try to, I just try to be honest, you know, and, and I can only share my experience. I can't tell you what it's going to be like for you. Right. I, I, I have different parents than you. And, and, you know, they say no child grows up with the same parents. And I kind of agree that. Yeah. And, and so probably no person grows up with the same experience with disability. Right. It, it's, it's all different. But I, I do know that there'll be some speed bumps along the way that it's not always easy, that it gets better. You become more resilient. You become tougher. Um, and, and those times of, of, of struggle and, and, and a real upfront experience with disability, as you get older, start to spread out and you start to, you start to gain uh, a mindset that allows you to come to terms with who you are and being thankful for that. And, and, and that's what I try to say. And I know that's a lot for young kids, um, but, I, but I say, you know, I, you're gonna do this. You know, the same things my dad said, you're up to this challenge. You know, so much more has been given to you than taken away. And you're not, you won't believe the things that are possible if you just keep striving for it and keep believing in yourself. That's so true. And, and I have found that throughout my life as well. Um, you know, to wrap up as, as a parent, as a parent myself, parent of two, uh, two kids in their 20s, I really related to the story of your parents and how they dealt with raising you. Um, explain now that you're a father, especially, but a husband as well, how, how their example of how they raised you influences you and has influenced you, uh, raising a family. Oh, wow. Well, you know, my kids, my girls, uh, they've met every, they put everything into perspective, right? I mean, they, you know, uh, just watching them grow up, watching, um, and we're very fortunate. We're fortunate as a family, you know, we, they went to good schools and we have a great life down here and, and baseball provided us an opportunity to, to see and do things growing up that I don't think we ever would have imagined in Flint, Michigan, 30 years ago, 40 years ago. Um, but my kids have, have given me a chance to move away from myself, you know, to move away from the, all the internalization and the prioritization of personal goals and day-to-day and -day things. And everything shifts. Everything shifts to wanting them to be happy. And, and it's hard. You know, it's really hard because we all agree that discomfort is a good thing, right? We, we talked about it earlier. It yep. pushes you. It does this. But then when our kids are going through discomfort, we hate it. It's like, yeah. oh, let's, let's get rid of this somehow. Let's protect them from it. And yet you have to watch them struggle and 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 go through that athletically or, or personally. And so um, the lessons do go both ways. And uh, for me, having two daughters, I'm most blessed that they have a great mom and, and that my uh, my wife has served as such an example for them. I get to play good cop down here and, and uh, I'm happy to do that. 
Well, and that was a lesson that your parents learned as well. It's like that you need to forge your own way and you you need to take it on the chin and wipe out and pick yourself up and, and all of that. So, and yes, I agree with you that watching your children do that is very difficult. Yeah, sure is. Sure is. And, and they're their own people, you know, and we want to guide them. And you know, I did a, I did an event one time with another Olympian, uh, Karch Karai, who I have great admiration for and um, who coaches the USA team now volleyball. And, and, and yep. he said one time something that stuck with me. He, he, he asks his kids, and I don't know how old they are now. I imagine they're probably getting up close to where our kids are. But uh, he, he asked his kids, what do, you, what do you think your mom and I reserve our greatest praise for? which I think is a phenomenal question. Like, huh. what do your kids think that you value most? And, and I, I, although I don't know that I've ever asked them directly that question, I would like to think that they think it's the same thing that I think it is, right? <laughs> that I, you know, I praise effort and, 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 and empathy and, and, you know, gratitude. And, and, and I hope it wasn't just, results in a, in a swimming pool or results on a volleyball court. You know what I mean? So um, we're always striving. We're always trying to get better. And, and hopefully our kids can, we can help them in some way, but also let them be their own people. Yeah. That's, that's the whole point of all this, uh, a parenting thing, I think, and families. Well, thank you, Jim. Thank you for being so open. This has really, really been amazing. And I appreciate chatting with you and getting to know you better. Thanks, John. I appreciate it. And uh, I'll be looking forward to seeing more episodes from you and, and congratulations. And, and um, it, was, it was great joining you. Thanks, Jim. Jim is inspired by a quote from Cormac McCarthy's award-winning Western, All the Pretty Horses. In it, the author writes, Those who have endured some misfortune will always be set apart, but it is just that misfortune which is their gift and which is their strength. And I agree, I found the biggest heartbreaks in life are an opportunity to learn. That is, if we allow ourselves to. If you'd like to pick up Jim Abbott's book, his best-selling memoir is appropriately titled Imperfect and Improbable Life. Thank you for joining us on Sports Life Balance. If you've enjoyed this episode, please give us your five-star review and do me a favor and tell a friend. Take care, everyone. You've been listening to Sports Life Balance with John Moffat.